been waiting so patiently can be dismissed now to Tabernacle Express. And uh, adults, we can be turning in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. In the Red Pew Bible, that's on page 914. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verse 21 to 26, um, but I'm going to start reading in verse 20, just to kind of set the context again. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Uh, Ruth Bell Graham, that's uh, Billy Graham's wife, many, many years, once asked if she had ever thought of divorce. And she replied, I, I've never considered divorce. Murder, yes, but not divorce. That's an honest answer, isn't it? And we're going to be looking at the importance of honesty about anger this morning. Uh, to stand before God's law with an open heart, an honest heart, is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. To clearly see that you don't have the ability on your own, in your own self, to enter into the kingdom is wise. It's the basis of saving faith. Do you remember Jesus' parable in which he, he, he talked about two men who were praying on the precincts of the temple? And one man... One man looked up into heaven, and he kind of cast an eye over to a publican and a sinner, and he said, I thank, I thank you that I'm not like that man over there, a publican and a sinner. And that publican, though, who was also standing there, was beating his chest and saying, I'm not worthy. And then Jesus asked the listeners, so whom went home that day justified, that is, accepted? And the answer was, of course, the man who beat his chest and said, I'm not worthy. He had found the basis of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He was honest. And we shouldn't expect entrance into the kingdom of heaven unless we are first honest about our own need for grace. Honesty is the foundation of real faith. Without honesty, as uh, as Eric was praying and referring to James 1 creates a double-mindedness. 
if we're dishonest about our own standing before God, we will have a double-mindedness that will distract us from a genuine faith. And so it's really important that when we look at God's laws, that we're not rewriting them in our minds, that we're not making them easier for us to um, live up to, because what we're doing in that case is we're not being honest about our before God. And so Jesus is teaching us, and he's going to give a series of examples that I'm coming to in his sermon of properly looking at the law, properly and properly seeing oneself in front of the law. And Jesus is teaching us that we have to approach the law with faith in the cross. Uh, the big idea this morning should sound a little bit familiar because it is being, it's carried over a little bit from our last, last Sunday, but I've added these three words. That a sincere faith is founded on God's ability to supply virtue you do not possess, and this is done by the cross. It's by the cross. And the cross has not happens sequentially as Jesus is preaching, but this is where it's moving towards. The sermon is setting up the awareness that we're not able to stand before God. We need a substitute to stand before God in, in our place. Jesus is ultimately heading there to release us from the curse of the law and also to provide us the virtue that we do not possess. So this need for honesty... I believe, is the foundation which follows in this series of five practical examples. And a dishonest heart, excuse me, an honest heart will be honest about God's laws, and a dishonest heart will rewrite God's laws to a level that can be kept. So when we look at these five examples, we've got to be careful that we're, first, not overly wooden in our desire to be faithful to the Word, we need to understand how these examples are being used so that we can rightly apply the law to our life. And we need to see them as models, as patterns. Jesus didn't come to a, uh, bring to us uh, alternatives to God's Word. He had come to fulfill. He had kind of put, to put flesh and, and um, tissue to the bones of God's law. So He's going to show us what really living up to God's law might look like. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees lived with the bare bones of the law that they had received in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and they had tried to flesh it out themselves, but they had painted this grotesque picture, almost like a zombie appearance of what God's laws meant. Jesus is giving us the flesh and blood, and he's, he's going to blow, blow life on this, these bones, these, these dry bones, if you will, and give them life and vitality like he did in the vision of bones and dry bones in Ezekiel's day. Let's pray and ask God to blow within our own hearts. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us as we hear this exposition from the, from the Son as to what God intended by his laws. Let's pray. Lord, change our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change us, Lord, that we might be able to assess the law properly and be honest about how we stand before your law 
and be grateful for the grace that you supply to us. Lord, help us to have courage to confess our sin, to, to acknowledge that we do fall short of the glory of God. And then help us to believe that we have forgiveness of all our sin and that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In your name we pray, amen. So the first of these five pieces of legislation, uh, this first one, this is the longest of illustrations. And as I said, they're showing us how to approach the law what kind of salt that we need in ourselves in order that we might be really light in the world. Uh, verse 16, just the broader context. Jesus said in verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, without a sincerity of faith, you're going to be like a Pharisee who practices their righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And it's critically important that we not just look at the bare bones of the law, but understand the depth of what they're communicating about our Heavenly Father. Verse 21, we see the very bare bones of the commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment, Jesus says. Now, five times in subsequent verses, you're going to see Jesus uh, use this kind of introductory phrase. Uh, you have heard that it was said five times. Now, there is a, a slight variation when you get to verse 31, where he simply says, it was also said. And I'll develop that a little bit more next Sunday. But in principle, there are five larger illustrations here, uh, six maybe if you consider uh, verse 31, but I see verse 31 through that little paragraph connected, but five illustrations I say, and um, this has led some to believe that Jesus was intensifying by addition to God's law, because then he follows up with, but I say to you in verse 22, so it's like, is Jesus giving an alternative, or is he giving us an addition to God's law? Well, I don't believe so. I believe what he's doing, he's giving us the inner heart of the matter. He's telling us what it really is, like the moral disposition of the heart that God is looking for in his creation. You're a moral agent, you make decisions, but everything flows out of the heart. So God is chiefly interested in what's in your heart. And as he develops this, obviously in verse 21, we know that murder is wrong and it deserves punishment. We know this to be true. He says we're liable to the judgments. But there has been a great shift in our society, so can I cannot assume that we all understand what, what is meant by God's moral law. Uh, the in America's founding era, there was a massive thought shift occurring on how people thought of crime and punishment. Boston churches, this is an older building in Boston area, began to teach the heresy of universalism. In general, this heretical teaching 
believed that it was God's goodness and his duty to bring all of the intelligent beings in the world into heaven eventually. And they began to view eternal punishment not so much as vindictive punishment, but as disciplinary punishment. Originally, the word vindictive uh, had, you know, and today it kind of has this unreasoned wrath kind of impression to us, doesn't it? Someone's being vindictive. They're not reasonably thinking through the justice of the situation. They're looking for revenge. But in the 17th century, vengeance was a more positive construction. It was the duty of the public government to, to punish sin and to bring retribution for crimes against society. Uh, there is a sense in which God is also a public person, and sometimes we don't envision God that way. But God is a public person, like a king, a sovereign over all of his creation, and he has set up moral laws that he expects to be obeyed and to be adhered to. God is personal. He has relationship with us one-to-one, -one, but we often forget that God is the supreme authority of this creation that he has created, and he has a system of just weights and balances. What goes up must come down in the world that he has created. And the moral laws of the universe demand just punishments, which correspond to crimes that have been committed not just against society, but against God himself, because God's a public person. Now, murder is wrong. It deserves a punishment. But people began to start to evaluate the good outcome for people and only focus on that and to take a disciplinary view has overtaken much of our judicial system. The penitentiary system developed within America in the 1800s. It was a system of reform and rehab and therapy for the ultimate re-education of people in society. For example, this uh, can go in the wrong direction pretty fast. Uh, I think of uh, my own country of Canada, where a capital offense is not a, it's not a capital crime in the sense of taking one's life for a life. The maximum sentence for capital punishments is 25 years. And so, vindictive punishment for crimes has been looked at as bad thing because we want to have the good outcome for these people, but not necessarily viewing the good that's required by God in punishing and staving off ultimate punishment that our society may experience. See, we're, we're all moral agents. We make decisions in, in our own lives, but we are responsible ultimately to the king of heaven. We make choices for good and bad, and the bare bones of a commandment, though, are important to understand. People don't wake up, though, and decide one day that they will be a murderer. There's lots of decisions along the way that brings a person to the point of taking the life of another person. 
And Jesus is saying, you've got to keep a steady hand on your heart so that you are never getting to that place in which you take the life of another. I think of our society and just how we have looked at punishments as being just moral reformation for people and forgetting that there is an ultimate scale of justice in God's mind. And God is intensely long-suffering. He is intensely long-suffering. But that puts us at risk of being like Nineveh, where we don't see God immediately responding to bring punishment to a violent culture. We may forget that there is a scale within his mind of just balances, and that one day he will bring devastation and punishment upon a nation. And we are a nation, if you will, that needs a Jonah to come to us and tell us that judgment is coming. We need that. So what is Jesus doing here? He's talking to us about the inner dispositions of the heart and how necessary that these need to be restrained in order to truly keep God's law so that we're not inclined towards murder. That's the flesh. The murder is the flesh, excuse me, is the bones. But Jesus is giving us the flesh and the tissue of the commandment. So in verses 22 to 26... The flesh and tissue of the commandment, thou shalt strive, if you will, for good relations. We have to be striving for good relations. Now, in this text, uh, it's, um, there's a series of examples that are given. And I see in these series of examples, I see two warnings. And I also see a third warning that's more implied. But in the mix of these warnings, there's also wisdom that's sprinkled throughout. And so as I develop this section of Jesus' teaching, I'm going to show you the three warnings first, and then we're going to look at the three pieces of wisdom that he invites us to respond to. And so verse 22, um, you see uh, the first warning. And he talks about how that unresolved anger is dangerous. In verse 22, he says, but I say to you that whoever, uh, excuse me, verse 22, but I say to you that anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, thinking about anger, anger in itself is not necessarily a sin. It might come off as uh, sounding strange to you. Anger is emotion that God has himself. Anger is an emotion that tries to rectify injustices. God's anger is kindled to punish sin. Now, anger is a dangerous energy because for sinners, very often, our anger doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. That's what James says. So often, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Psalm 37, verse 8, Psalm 37 tells us, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. Now, God's anger may deepen over time, but it's always 
justly extinguished by the punishment of sin. We can't extinguish anger in the same way that God extinguishes anger. And so for us to hold on to anger indefinitely is dangerous. We shouldn't allow anger to burn and kindle without some sort of resolution because it can infect us and hurt us internally and it can destroy people around us if it's not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, here, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgments. We're liable to the judgment. Just as much as someone who actually carries out murder. Does that surprise you? Does that, like, does that seem, like, incongruous? Does it seem strange that that just anger itself would be still on the same level as as murder well we're moral agents in god's universe he's wired within us the moral laws of his world and anger is an emotion that's designed to draw us to resolution and if we don't use that energy properly we are actually in a state of non-compliance with how he's created us. How do you, like, this may be a new concept for you, but I quoted this uh, text last Sunday, Leviticus 19, 17 to 19, we see these words. You shall not hate your brothers in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You see that? You're not to have anger in your heart and hatred, but instead you're to use that energy to move you towards reasoning frankly with your neighbor. The next verse he says, he says, uh, you, that's lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And so, the potential of, of enacting vengeance for yourself is great if you retain this anger in your heart. And so, instead, you are supposed to move towards and reason frankly with your brothers so that you don't become guilty of even more sin. We might have good reasons to be angry, but if our anger is not used to resolve something biblically, we're putting ourselves underneath of God's justice system that demands punishment for our own anger. That's not being used properly. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't, if you don't have like a proper understanding here of, and a perspective about your own sinfulness and the, your own potential for your anger to be destructive, you may not actually have light in yourself. You may have a lot of anger, flame, but not have true light from God. You might not truly understand. You may actually be in danger of hellfire. You think that just because you don't murder others that you're innocent before God? Not at all. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
And Jesus' words on anger ought to slay us. Because I know my own heart that anger within myself, if it's not resolved, goes towards sin. And I know that I'm not alone. And Jesus is saying that if you don't recognize and be honest with yourself about this anger and unresolved nature of this anger that you have within yourself, the little verbal slips that you have about someone, oh, they're a fool, oh, you know, they're an idiot, that's coming out of anger that has not resolved itself. And Jesus says that if you're not honest about yourself, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you think that you are able on your own to stand before God, take heed lest you think you will stand, you will be found that you will fall. And so how do we enter into the kingdom of God? Because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We come because we're coming to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, that's where the punishment for my sin has been taken care of. All of God's anger for my sin has been placed upon Him upon the cross so that I am able to stand in His presence. It's by grace alone, through faith of an honest heart towards Him that says, I'm able to stand not by my own righteousness, but by the virtues that He supplies. So it's a warning. Be careful. Don't let unresolved anger uh, threaten your eternal security. You're, you should have a lack of assurance if you retain anger indefinitely within your heart and not resolve as you ought to. Because you're having a dishonest heart. Verse 23 to 24, unresolved sin leads to a dishonest heart. This is the second warning, I believe, that's here. It's stated a little bit more proactively, and so it's more implicit underneath, because we read, let's just continue reading, verse 23, it says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so, there is positive steps that are being described here. And Jesus is turning towards heart examination of, of, like, you're standing there before the throne, and he's referring to someone who refuses to engage in reconciliation when, when the Spirit prompts within the heart of the worshiper that they have unfinished business. They need to go and get reconciled with somebody. Think about the Jewish system of the altar and sacrifice, and it's like the priest is right there, and the lamb is right in front, and you're putting your head on top of that, that lamb, and in that moment, you become like aware, oh my, Zechariah up in Galilee is like, he's, he's got something against me. What should he do? Jesus says, Walk away from the altar. Do the inconvenience of traveling two and a half days up north and standing before Zechariah and confessing and, and getting something right there between yourselves. That's inconvenient. 
But not doing so is a dangerous thing because if you overlook, what you're doing is you're suppressing your conscience. You're suppressing and deceiving yourself, which is so much more, it's worse. Because what you're doing is you're enacting hypocrisy. An unresolved sin leads to a dishonest heart, and that will keep you out of God's heaven. A dishonest heart will actually bring you into hellfire. Unresolved sin ends in the same place as unresolved anger. So whether anger or sin, any kinds of sins, if we let these be unresolved, we create a double-mindedness that distracts us from following Christ and following Him. So I'm going to come back in a little bit to the wisdom that's inherent in these words, but we're going to keep moving because there's a third warning here in the last couple of verses, 25 to verse 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this is not intended to be like legal advice, like settle, settle out of court kind of thing. Um, that's not what's intended here, but it's telling us rather we should not allow bad relationships to remain unresolved. And uh, as the story goes on in this, we don't know how it all works itself out, but what we do see is that there's this unresolved nature of debt and there's obligation to pay to the last penny. The structure is progressive. You see in verse uh, 26, this progressive uh, structure of repayment, kind of in a downward towards the smallest fraction. This is intentionally parallel to what Jesus said in verse 22. Look at verse 22 again. So I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Well, that sounds a little bit stronger. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's even stronger. And these two parallels are intended to teach us that if we do not resolve these bad elements in our life, we may find that we are not entitled to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and we may have to pay to the last penny the extent of our choices. God has a moral universe, and he has systems of balance, and they have to be repaid. Will you find your repayment at the cross, or will you have to bear it yourself? So as a public person, God must judge sin. Otherwise, his own system would be disordered, and he would cease to be God. You all look at our world, and we, you say, our country is out of control. You know why it's out of control? It's because we've, we've rewritten God's laws and ignored the necessity to pay and punish sin for society. We've twisted God's intentions 
and we've, just, we've tried to create a system of reforming. But what we've done in the process of appearing to be merciful is we've disordered God's world. And we're paying the price of it by a disordered culture. Note there in verse 20, uh, 26, you pay the last penny. I think the King James says farthing, right? It's the old, old British pound system. All crime against God is of infinite character. And what this means is that for God's system of justice to balance properly is that there be an infinite payment for infinite crimes against him. That's a long time to pay for unresolved debts that we owe God. So, this is why he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. We have a greater accuser before the law. It's God himself. And he calls us to reconcile with him, and he encourages us to take the payment that he's paid on our behalf at the cross. And it would be wise for all who hear these words to accept the cross as substitutional payment for themselves by faith, believing that this has been done for you personally. Reconciliation, so we're, we're going to go now to, like, to this wisdom side of things, and I want us to see how on an individual personal level, reconciliation should be sought lest judgment be experienced. Verse 24, uh, in this one verse, we have like this little, little, little steps that we can take. Little, just like very simple little steps that we can take that we can avoid pain in relationships. We ought to be asking ourselves as the Holy Spirit prompts our own hearts with those whom we have anger and frustration, what little steps are we taking to resolve conflict? Well, in verse 24, he says, leave your gift there. Leave it there, if you remember. The Lord doesn't want to talk to you until you have talked to others. We can open our Bibles and we can pray, but we can build hypocrisy within our hearts. If we'll not take the time to forgive those who have failed us, our sins and failures will not be forgiven either. And so Jesus encourages us in verse 24. He says, go first. First, go. You're standing at the altar. Go first. Be reconciled. Go first. You might think that that might be slighting God, but no, that's actually honoring God. It, it's an honor to God to reverse the order. It's deeply honorific because it saves you also from having an impure heart before God himself. Verse 24, it continues, and it says, and then come back and offer your gift. You know, pick up where you left off. You know, don't, don't just like resolve things and then just walk away. Come back and worship. God accepts you because you have obeyed him and reverenced him and what he wants you to do. You know, the early church took this so seriously. Uh, one ancient text uh, now, it's not Bible text, it's an ancient record of 
some of the traditions that in the first century the church carried out. Um, it's called the Didache. There is a section in there that describes how people prepared for the communion service. And in this, there's instruction that says, and on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice might be pure. And let no one having a dispute with a fellow join your assembly until they have been reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be defiled. That's wisdom. And Jesus is teaching us in this Sermon on the Mount not to relax the law, rather to live honestly before it. And the reason you offer a sacrifice is why? You're not holy. The first little step is to recognize that you, you don't have a right to stand before God. And the reason you come to Christ is that He would give you the virtue that you don't possess. That's wisdom. And so reconciliation with others ought to also be done through uh, the recognition that judgment has been procured through Christ's cross for us. This is the second piece of wisdom, coming to that settled awareness that you can forgive others because you yourself have been forgiven. That's so helpful. That's so hopeful. In Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection made satisfaction for your crimes against God's moral government. See that sinful anger that, that kind of keeps kind of brewing within you? If it's left unresolved, is going to destroy you. But you can then transfer it, though, over to Christ's cross, realizing that you have been forgiven all of your sin. The Son of God took upon Himself the capacity for misery. He took upon Himself the capacity to experience pain. And so he went to the cross, and he voluntarily took upon himself the sins of the whole world. See, Christ is a person of infinite worth. He is able to pay the infinite price of your crime. He is the only one that God can look at and say, I'm satisfied with that punishment. He's a person of infinite worth. But yet, he is also a person of infinite value because he, he lived the sinless life that we ought to have lived. There is a repository of wealth there, of righteousness, that he freely distributes to all who call upon his name. He gives his own son's righteousness to all who call upon his name. And he provides peace. And so it's wise for us to look at the cross and approach the law with faith in the cross. See, all that is required of us is to look to the cross, to admit our, our heart is not able to stand before Him, and accept that atonement for us and believe it, and know that then we are forgiven. This is wisdom. This is implicit within the, the framework of Jesus' teaching. A third piece of wisdom here, and I think it references back to the whole point of the Beatitudes. The whole point of the Beatitudes. 
peacemaking requires that you trust God's system of justice. Um, if you go back to the Beatitudes in verse 9, it's, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I believe this last bit of wisdom here relates to the, the anger which may motivate us to resolve the issues in our relationships. But in order to actually be a peacemaker, though, and to be truly called a son of God, not like causing problems in our effort to be a peacemaker, we've got to resolve not to use the sword and believe that that's, that's left to God. The sword of God's justice, that's His to, to wield. And I have to trust His system of justice as I move towards someone that has offended me. I have to trust that their sins can be forgiven as much as my own sins have been forgiven. When anger flares, we've got to be slow to speak, slow to wrath. We've got to trust God's system of justice. Because you know what? God always gets his man. He always gets his man. And an honest heart, though, will remove the beam in one's own eye so that they can be a peacemaker with others. You know, so many people will look at that, we're going to come to it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, I don't want to say anything to them because, you know, I, I probably have something in my own life. That's sidestepping responsibility. Because this text tells us to take the beam out of our own eye and then go to the other person. Be a peacemaker. You have to have salt in yourself. We cannot stay children forever. We need to take responsibility for our own actions so that then we can be a help to others. There is wisdom in being a peacemaker because Jesus says we will then be called the sons of God. We will demonstrate that we are a part of the family of God. Now, I know that anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, in the right way, that's not easy. That's hard. That's very hard. So what do you do? Well... How do you know if you have the kind of faith that it takes to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, first you have to be honest. You have to be honest about your own heart. And then second, you need to wholeheartedly look to the cross. And then third, I believe that you'll start to bear fruit by dealing with that unresolved anger internally unresolved sins, and unresolved debts, and you can do that through the cross.